0: Hi everybody and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. With me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. So I guess the cat's out of the bag don't know why I felt the need to sing that, but we're just going to accept that it happened. Everybody good? Good. So, I'm going to Kansas. I will allow you to make your total jokes now. Yes. Will I wear gingham? Quite probably, because I'll think it's funny. No one else will, but I will. And that's the important thing. So yes, I am going to be in Kansas at the end of May. I think it's Memorial Weekend? Memorial Day Weekend? I You have a lot of weekends, America. I'm doing the best I can, right? So yeah, I'm going to be there for the Heartland Pagan Festival 2023 into the night. And I am... Um, and so I'm going to be doing a talk with a Q&A, three workshops, and there is going to be a live podcast recording. Now... This is a family-friendly festival, so I'm going to have to choose my words incredibly carefully. That being said, if you're coming to the live podcast recording, and you're bringing somebody who's, you know, sensitive to language, just cover their ears when I say fuck that for a game of soldiers, because it's gonna happen. Like, I'm gonna do my best, but there's probably gonna be at least three F-bombs happening. I will try to replace them with other words, like fluff, or fork, or fudge. Or Frick. Or Phantasmagorium. I'll do my best. But yeah, so one talk on the history of like witchcraft and mysticism throughout human evolution. And there's going to be a Q&A on that, so I'm prepared. And then I have three workshops. These are going to be The Victorians Ruined Everything, a 19th century guide to mystics and more. The next workshop is... The Old Gods and the New, Ethnic Cleansing and the Pagan Revival, and the last workshop is Paganism and the Patriarchy, Over Five Centuries of Demonizing Women. Uh, and then, of course, there's the live uh, podcast recording, which I'm not going to tell you what it's about, because uh, I might have a better idea <laughs> of what I want to cover by then, because uh, I want to stay on theme, obviously, and so we're gonna we're gonna work towards that and hope for the best. I'm going to be very tired and I'm probably going to become very hoarse by the last day. I think I'm there for the majority of the festival, but I'm just not there for the last-ish day. Just because I have to physically travel home and I lose a day travelling back. So I'm gonna be there for like 98% of this. I think I said on the last episode, I don't remember, I was very tired. I, I rarely remember anything I say actually, it's, it's, I'm amazed when I remember anything. Like I get friends who message me things I've said and I'm like, that's funny, who said that? You, you dick. Cool, yep, thanks, sounds about right. But yeah, I, uh. I'm in New Jersey for a couple days gonna see some people I've got some stuff planned and I might I don't even know if I'll see New York like I'm so mm, I guess I'll find out but if anybody has any recommendations for like good places to eat or like what what's good to eat over there like I'm not touching any of your chocolate I know it's not great and I'm staying the fuck away from like corn syrup based goods but well, I say that because corn syrups and everything. But, like, I've had, like, corn syrup sweets, like, Swedish fish. They're not pleasant. I don't enjoy them. You give me some Cheetos, though. I'm going devour those. Yum nom nom nom, 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 I like potato chips. Why did I sound like Goofy from, like, well, Disney? Oh, dear. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness, actually. So I I had to go buy some cards today just because I did. And I'm in the card shop and I pick up a condolence card and a valentine's card. And as I hand them over to like the cashier, he kind of pauses and looks at them funny and kind of glances at me. And me being me, I'm like, I look this poor boy dead in the eye and say, always good to be prepared. See? This is why I'm single. This is why. Because I can't have normal conversations with people. Uh, The Valentine's card is for my friend and I'm so happy. It's the funniest card. It's got chicken nuggets on it. And it's like, you're like chicken nuggets because you make me happy. And I'm like, that's perfect. And I'm going to send that because... My friend deserves all the love, all the love, all of it, in all of its forms, in as many ways that she can accept it. Like, that is what she deserves. Everything. Um, what was it? Victor Hugo was like, I wish for the superfluous, for the extravagant, for the too much. She deserves the too much, because she's just awesome. OMG, actually, yeah. <laughs> I'm also a terrible terrible I'm a great friend but I'm a terrible friend so um two of my friends that didn't know each other previously they connected and as far as I know there's nothing um non-platonic going on but either way I uh so I messaged one friend and I'm like well Mr. X. Like, I straight up texted him, like, What exactly are your intentions with my best gal? The apple of my eye, my ride or die. And, um, he was like, my intentions are pure honest. Oh my God, no. <laughs> I was just like, I found it really funny. Um, <laughs> I don't care. They can bone if they want, but like, it was just the funniest thing. I was like, no. I'm running with this. This is hilarious. And also she is my best girl and I will straight up stab anybody who upsets her. Okay, that is how things are. That is my bestie. I will break every single bone in your body. I will snap you like a twig. And then, and then, while you are still living, I will bury you alive. And the last thing you will see is my smirking grin above your face as you slowly suffocate. But anyway, she's my gal. Love her so much. That got a bit dark, didn't it? No, we don't, we don't mess with my bestie. Okay? I think we've learned that lesson. Okay, good talk. Anyway, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, quit your jibber-jabber and fact me. In fact you, I will. But first, we've got to get our source on. Our sources are... Lord Darling's Famous Cases by Dudley Barker The trail of George Joseph Smith by Eric R. Watson Death Under the Microscope by Harold Dearden The Magnificent Spellsbury and the Case of the Brides in the Bath by Jane Robbins and we have The Braids in the Bath Case by The Watford Observer I use it comfortably. Good, then let's begin because it is historical true crime time. So, I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time because you know, I love my crime historical, the older the better, you know. And I actually didn't realize that I had heard about this case much earlier than I thought I did because I thought I'd only like read up on it like a few years ago, but I'd actually been informed of it. At least 10 years ago. Because I was getting ready for, I think, college one morning. And my dad came in from night shift. And we would just, you know, chat. And for some reason, he was telling me about the modus operandi. The manner in which they believe the murders occurred. For some reason, this was my breakfast and his dinner conversation. And, yeah... I I was going through, like, my notes the other day and I was thinking, wait a minute, why do I know this? Like, why does this death sound so familiar? And then I was like, you motherfucker, Steven. Steven! That being said, this is the man who buys me historical crime books whenever he's on trips away and, and has taken me on walking tours uh, for, like, Jack the Ripper and other shit. So yeah, we shouldn't be surprised. But yes let's talk about the brides and the bath murders and i'm actually going to start this story in bath the town of the town of bath in england in 1914 december so the first world war is happening like context you know some people are away fighting they thought it was only gonna last a couple months. They were wrong. On December 17th, 1914, in the city slash town of Bath in England. Is it a city? I've always called it a town. I don't, maybe I'm incorrect. Anyway, in this tranquil seaside town, estate agent John Lloyd marries Margaret Elizabeth Lofty. So they get married. And they decide they're going to honeymoon in London, which sounds super fun. I'm I'm sure. The newlyweds, fresh in their marital bliss, scoot off to Highgate in London, where they stay in a lodging house on 14 Bismarck Road. So these newlyweds, they are in the hustle and bustle city of London for their honeymoon. So you know what they do. They cross their T's and dot their I's and they head off to a solicitor in Islington because they want to make sure they've got everything, you know, everything's above board, everything's going well for them. They go and visit a solicitor in Islington and they both work out their will and testaments. You know, lest anything happen to one another. And after paper is signed, the ink is dry, they head back to the boarding house for some fun time that I assume, you know, the newly married couple will be doing. I mean, let's face it, Mr and Mrs Lloyd have had a trying couple of days. They've gotten married, they've sorted out their will and testaments. It's just, it's just a lot, you know. So she really just needs to relax and have a good soak in a bath. You know what I mean? Just chill out. So she goes for a bath and he decides to play the organ. Not his organ, but the organ. I mean, that's exactly the the sounds you want to hear when you're trying to have a lovely relaxing bath. Christian hymns. Yay. So after having a week go on his organ, he pops down to see the landlady and tells her he's off to get some tomatoes for his wife's supper. So he leaves and he comes back shortly after. And he has to ring the bell. So he's supposed to have a key. But he's ringing the bell to be let in. And so the landlady lets him in. And he calls out to his wife. But there's no answer. So he makes a big show. And he goes up the stairs. Enters the bathroom and... Gasp! Shock! Horror! What does he find but the lifeless body of his new bride. Laying in the bath. Unresponsive. So there's an inquest because of the insurance policy. So, the widow, John Lloyd, he cannot receive any benefits. He can't receive any of the funds from his late wife's will without the inquest. I mean, it's a formality, really. They just need to rule out, like, foul play and other things of that nature. So the inquest is supposed to happen fairly quickly. But due to one of the, the people involved being ill, one of the sort of juror people, it gets delayed for a little bit and doesn't happen till the first of January twenty fifteen. So it gets ruled an accidental death, and the funeral happens quickly thereafter. So the funeral it's it's basically a pauper's funeral. It's there's no show, there's no nothing, there's no like reverence. It's very much here you go, say a prayer, put it on the ground, adios, like. Quickly, and like when the funeral's over he actually you know audibly says thank goodness that's over I mean I mean hmm that's I mean I don't want to speak out of turn here but to me that sounds like an itty-pitty teeny-weeny bit of a red flag here's the thing about news bad news travels fast and travel it did Here's the thing about newspapers, tabloids be tabloiding, and some stories just make headline. A newlywed bride drowns in a bath on her honeymoon <gasps> in London, the very capital of England. My, well that's a news story. So News of the World is, you know, it's a nationwide newspaper. It's read all across the country. And two people in particular come across this story and find it rather interesting and find it strikingly similar to other deaths. And very soon, the police receive letters from Mrs. Crossley, who runs a boarding house, and a Mr. Charles Burnham. And naturally, They're a wee bit suspicious, and so they write to the police. I mean, the women were from different areas, and the husbands did have different names and occupations. But my, what a crazy random happenstance that... that a new bride should be found dead in a bathtub so soon after being married. Huh. So Mrs. Crossley, she is suspicious as hell and she says to her husband fuck this for a game of soldiers we need to contact the police so she manages to contact Charles Burnham I don't know if it's he goes to them or they go to him because it was in their boarding house that a Mrs Alice Smith seems to have perished in the same manner Is Margaret Lloyd. So on January 3rd. John Crossley writes a letter. On behalf of Mrs. Crossley. And Charles Burnham. So the landlady of the boarding house. And the father. Of the dead bride. The corpse bride. If you will. Too much? Too far? Maybe. Okay. So. They contact Detective Inspector Arthur Neal. Who's like head of the division, I think, in Scotland Yard at the time? So they contact him and they're like, hey mate, wanna have we look at this? Might wanna have we nosy round, by the way. Just saying, we bit sus. And so he does. Off he trots to 14 Bismarck Road in Highgate in London and he heads to that boarding house. And so he meets with the landlady of the boarding house and she shows him the room the newlyweds stayed in. And they have a look at the room. So she tells him that she finds it a wee bit weird that they chose that room specifically because it's not even the nicest room they have. The only thing that's convenient about that room is the bathtub. So Neil, Inspector Neil. do 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 Inspector. do 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 Neil. It's not a perfect sound. It's fine. So he's having a wee nosy around this bathtub. And he's thinking, that's a wee bit dodgy, because the bathtub, and the first thing he notices is how petite it is, cosy some might say, because it's only like 50 inches long and 60 inches like the top, and it's, it's small, it's a small bathtub, and he finds it a wee bit odd that she drowned in something so small. And the landlady tells him that it was only like three quarters full. It wasn't even that deep. And so he's thinking, that's that's weird. That's suspicious. And it's worth investigating. So off he goes to the coroner. He meets the coroner and he asks, is there any signs of violence? Because automatically he's thinking, bitch is drowned, right? Definitely... Drowning. That seems to be the case. She must have been held under. There must be, like, signs of bruising. And there isn't really. There's, like, this wee bruise above her elbow, but nothing really to sing home about. So it's a wee bit strange. And so he's looking at the death certificate. He's like, okay, that's that's weird. Um, But the coroner does say... That although, you know, there wasn't anything suspicious about, like, her body or whatever, what was odd was that Mr. Lloyd, the bereaved widow, didn't actually seem to, you know, bothered or grieving or, I don't know, maybe a wee bit sad that your new wife is dead. So after he deals with the coroner, he goes to the undertaker and he finds out that Mr. Lloyd... Picked the cheapest coffin available, like, if there was a way to have, like, a bigger discount on it, he would have taken it. He would have put her in a burlap sack, if it would have been socially acceptable to do so. So, this is all adding up, being a wee bit odd. And so Inspector Neil, he is on a roll at this point. Off he goes to Islington, finds a solicitor, and gets a copy of the will. There he discovers that the sole beneficiary of Margaret Lloyd's will, (gasps) Kelsey Breeze, is her husband, Mr. John Lloyd. That very same day, the day of her death, Margaret Lloyd had cleared out her savings, gone to her solicitor, and made her husband, her new husband, the sole beneficiary of Everything. Everything she had. She then travelled back to a boarding house. And three hours later, she was dead. Now being the smart wee cookie that he is, or was, I'm fairly certain he's no longer on this mortal realm. Inspector Neil starts putting two and two together and thinks, aha, there's trouble afoot. The very next week, Inspector Neal receives a call from the coroner, Dr. Bates. Yes, really. Who, as it turns out, has been contacted by the Yorkshire Insurance Company regarding a life insurance payout on behalf of a Mrs Margaret Lloyd for £700. And, this may shock you, the sole beneficiary of this £700? (gasps) Well, yes, you are right. Mr John Lloyd, the widower. So Neil, he is still investigating so he tells the coroner to just like stall a wee bit so we can look. And so as he's searching, he discovers that he discovers that the late Alice Smith, her husband also received a life insurance payout upon her untimely demise. and at this point, Inspector Neil is absolutely convinced that he is dealing with the same person. he's like, This is a bigamist. This is a murderer. So, Inspector Neil decides to get a wee bit slicker, a wee bit sneaky, and he tells the coroner to just, like, give a favourable thing, tell the insurance company it's good to go, and that John Lloyd needs to contact his solicitor. And so there's a stakeout, and they are watching this, like, night and day. And finally, on the 1st of February, 1915, John Lloyd goes to sort out his late wife's will, and upon leaving the solicitors, feels a wee tug on his sleeve. And who is it? But Detective Inspector Arthur Neal? And he asks him, are you John Lloyd? He says yes. And then he asks him, are you George Smith, the husband of Alice Smith? The man doesn't answer. So Inspector Neal informs him that he's being arrested for putting false information on a marriage certificate. And so he's like, yep, actually, yeah, it's me. I'm George Smith. Because, you know, what's a little bit of bigamy amongst friends, right? But when John Lloyd slash George Smith is taken in, he realizes that it's actually... Not just Pegamy he's being called in for. And that Inspector Neal knows far more about his life than he ever wanted him to know. What do we know about John Lloyd? George Smith? George Love? Henry Williams? Or Charles James? Why, oh why, would one man have so many aliases? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'll tell you. But first, let's start with the actual name, George Joseph Smith. So George Joseph Smith, he was born on the 11th of January, 1872, in Bethnal Green in London. And his dad's an insurance agent. What his mum does, I don't fucking know. There's no information. I I couldn't find it. Because she's a woman in the past. Why the fuck does she matter? But we can have this arsehole's birthday. Of course we can. Absolutely. fucking literally. So yeah, there's that. When he's nine, don't know what kind of upbringing he had, but nature and archer in it, when he's nine, he gets sent to a reformatory school, which is where they send you for acting like a little shit. Or, you know, or when, you know, crazy Christians invade your land, colonise it, and then try to strip all part of your indigenous identity away from yourself. But that's not the case here. In this case, he was a little shit. So, He gets sent there, and then at some point, near adulthood or in adulthood, he goes away for thieving and swindling. Something that continues on for most of his life. George sported a big ginger bushy beard and had eyes of a mad dog. And somehow, still managed to be a ladies' man, man's man, man about town. He had a way with the ladies somehow, apparently. But men hated him. Apparently he was arrogant and he irritated them. See, what's lucky for George here is that he is a Victorian man. And this is a period where like industrialization has really, really taken to the fore. And many women had big fat dowries. They had money. They were a lot of them. And men were lucky and had power and needed wives. And nobody wanted to be a spinster. Oh no. Ah. So yeah, he was very, in a very convenient point in time. So he manages to, I don't know, woo some lady in their courting. And he convinces her to steal from their employer. Or her employer, I should say. And in what is probably the only legitimate business practice he has ever had, he uses this money to set up like a bakery, a bread shop because yup, yup that's a fun and awesome thing to do so there he is he's gone to prison he's stolen a bunch of stuff he had some money he sets up a bakery what happened to the first woman he courted? unsure not entirely Mm. so she's not in the picture And George, who, you know, has a criminal past and doesn't want to get caught, he is using the alias George Love. Because of course he fucking is. I'm George Love, and I own a bakery. Betty saunters in, twirling his big bushy beard, asking the ladies, So, do you want to see my bread rise? You make my dough plump. (laughs) So anyway, So his yeasty charm, it works on the 18-year-old Caroline Thornhill, who thinks, wow, I've met this lovely baker named George Love. Things are going to work out swell for me. I mean, it's the Victorian era. You're marrying a man with his own business. It's 1898. Things are going well for you. But then it turns out he is neither a good baker nor a good businessman, and he goes bankrupt. So... What are they going to do? She has to help the man she loves, of course. You think Mrs. Love isn't going to stand by her husband? Well, we'll see. So he basically pushes her into becoming a maidservant because she's a woman. Clearly she knows how to be a maid. So yeah, she gets working as a maid and she kind of pulls a 40 elephant scenario. So she goes in and she pilfers a bunch of shit. And tries to flog it. And they actually do this successfully for quite a while. So they're moving around like London, Brighton, pillar to post. You know, she's stealing silver and jewellery and then fencing it off. Because she's the one who's doing it. Because he's a lazy bitch. And is doing his best not to get caught. So one day she's trying to get rid of a bunch of jewellery. And this pawnbroker is just really fucking suspicious. Calls the police and gets her arrested and so she gets sent away to prison so she gets put away for 12 months she serves a 12-month sentence and her husband George Love fucking disappears no hide nor hair of him oh also in addition furthermore in 1899 so like the year after he marries Caroline Beatrice Thornhill he marries another woman whose name I cannot find anywhere. Like, he married someone... don't know who. But he married them. And who knows what he did in the interim period, because we have no fucking notion, because he did a bunch of shit. So after celebrating 12 months, Mrs Caroline Love is released from prison. And as she's sauntering about one day, who does she clap eyes on? Oh, look... It's her fucking husband who left her to rot. So what does she do? She calls the cops. She reports him. She testifies against him and gets him sent away to prison. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations, and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. And that's where he goes. Now, and in 1901, he is sentenced to two years in prison. So when he gets out in 1903, even if he was trying to, like, get revenge on Caroline, she's migrated. She got the heck out of Dodge, and she fucked off to Canada. Like, bye. Not dealing with you. She was smart. She got out. So he goes back to his other wife, his second wife that we know of, and he does what is effectively going to be a pattern of behaviour. He clears out her savings and then buggers off. Apparently wife number two stood by him while he was in prison but, I mean, good for you to have that dedication I guess? But uh, let's not, shall we? Let's not. So what George Joseph Smith does for the next five years Is anybody's fucking guess. We don't know. There's nothing. Was he in prison? Was he using an alias? Was he stealing from women? Whom's to say? But going by his pattern of behaviour and his modus operandi, I could very much, like, use basic logic to assume he... George would court women, sometimes marry them, and then convince them to just give him money, you know, for a business venture or for some life insurance thing and uh, he would just take it. Sometimes he would just steal from them, he would just raid their savings and he would just piss off. In 1908, George marries a widow from Worthing, Florence Wilson. So they get married in June 1908 and by July 3rd, so a month Or less than a month he empties her savings account he takes 30 pounds out of it which is like three grand in today's money so he takes all that he clears their house in Camden and sells all their shit like he sells everything takes as much money as possible and then heads off to Bristol And on the 30th of July, he marries Edith Pegler. And now this marriage, this one's a little bit different from the rest because he at one point had put this advertisement out for a housekeeper for, you know, lodgings in Bristol. And Edith Pegler, Edith Mabel Pegler, I should say, she responds. So, by 30th of July, they get married. So... He's left Florence on the 3rd of July, he marries her on the 30th of July, and he tells her that he's, you know, an antiques dealer, so he's away a lot, and he would always come back to her with money, and she's probably the closest thing to caring about another human that he could do, but he loved money more than he loved her, like, he claimed to love her, but money was just more important ruining lives apparently much more fun than you know actually having one but what do you know men in it so but yeah I'm sorry this bothers me because that's the thing like between marriages he would go back to Edith and he was like I'm back from selling antiques hello love like he would just keep going back to her and like was she in on it did she know what he was really like and they were sort of cool with it. Like, I don't know, I want to say, like in, in, in Mad Men, Don Draper's, I think, third wife, who knows all this shit, she's like, yep, like, is this is this where we're at? But, you know, him ruining people's lives, is that, I don't know. So in 1909, he marries Sarah Freeman. Clearly, money's getting dry. So he marries her and then, a little while later, he buggers off. He takes about 400 pounds in total. So that's like, what, 40,000 pounds in today's money. He sells her war bonds, he clears out her savings. He just grabs them and off he goes. So in August 1910, George Joseph Smith under the alias Henry Williams marries Beatrice Monday in Weymouth, I think it is. Beatrice, Who goes by Bessie. She's 38, so she's, she's, again, she's out past Spinster. She's now a thornback. back. Like, she's put out to pasture at this point. She's an old, old maid. And when he comes along, like, wow, this is her chance for love, for companionship, you know. And all the other things that Victorian women are supposed to uphold. But Bessie here was very lucky because Bessie had inherited £2,500 from her father, like when he died. Her new husband was hoping to get his hands on the cash. Unfortunately, Bessie's father was one too smart for him and had the money placed in the hands of trustees. So he would have to go through them to get her money. So he manages to, like, cajole and convince her to give him £150. And once he gets it, he accuses her of giving him, like, disease, like an STI. So he's like, you've given me syphilis or some shit. Like, I mean, the Regency era, I think, like, one in five Londoners had syphilis. So, I mean, by the time the Victorian era came around, it's quite possible. But yeah, he's like, you've given me syphilis, or whatever the fuck. He said a venereal disease, but I don't know which one. But it's probably syphilis. But yeah, so he accuses her of giving him a disease. And he leaves her, because he's like, dirty woman, Ah, nasty. And off he goes. But then, what do you know? 18 months later, Bessie is... Promenading through Western Supermare, and who sure does she see? But her long-lost husband, Henry Williams. So he apologizes to her, he's like, Sorry, I got an STI, and then I didn't want to give it to you, and I felt really bad about it. And she's like, I forgive you because I'm a Victorian woman. Yay. And Bessie, she's just happy to have her husband back because this, I mean, it makes her a respectable woman again, doesn't it? Her art dealer husband has returned to her and nobody has, like, a spotted dick or whatever. Hooray. And so she brings him back to her lodgings and then off they go to a solicitor. What do you know? And they draw up mutual wills because that's what couples should do when they reconcile finance so let's refinance this marriage woo woo so off they go and they basically say that they will inherit like all the stuff that each other has in the event of the death so if he dies he gets the two and a half grand and if she dies she gets nothing because the man probably does not have a pot to piss in i mean he's probably used the same wedding band for like all of them I mean, did they wear wedding bands in the Victorian era at this point? I feel like they did. Like, I can't remember. Someone will tell me. So they reconcile, they refinance, and Henry Williams rents a house for him and his reconciled bride in Heron Bay. And Bessie thinks that this is just a wonderful place for them to restart their lives together. He gets a wee brass plaque because, you know, He's an auctioneer. But a brass plaque does not make a home. You know what makes a home? A bathtub. And Bessie helps pick it out. She goes and picks out the bathtub. And at this point, Bessie's no longer a strange husband. He's telling her she looks a wee bit peaky, and he takes her to this doctor in Kent. And he explains that she's having fits. He's like, I think she might be epileptic. And the doctor says... Sure, maybe. Bessie had mentioned that she'd been getting headaches and the doctor prescribes her some medication. On the 12th of July, the doctor gets a call from Henry Williams saying that his wife has had a seizure. Can you come over at once? Like, oh dear. So the doctor comes to see him, he checks on her, he gives her some medicine and he says he'll pop by the next day. He receives a a note from Mr Williams. And what do you know? He went out to buy food one day, came back and found his beloved wife, Bessie, dead. So Dr. French, rushes over and there he sees Bessie, as naked, face up in the tub, but there's like no signs of foul play, there's no signs of violence. So when it comes down to it, you know, he signs everything off and he says, yep. Death by epileptic fit, and so I think it becomes registered as like a death by misadventure. And so Henry Williams is finally able to get his hands on Bessie's inheritance of £2,579, 13 shillings and seven pence. When it came to laying Bessie to rest, she had a pauper's funeral and a pauper's grave, cheapest coffin. Cheapest everything, basic, basic, buried, bye bye But of course, you know, this man is a lazy motherfucker and I don't know, he's just pissing his money away at this point. I don't know. Because the following year, like just over a year later, November 1913, he marries Alice Burnham, a nurse. And so they get married and the newlyweds decide to honeymoon in Blackpool. And they lodge. Mrs. Crosley's boarding house. So they go in there and Alice starts complaining of headaches. So yeah for basically a month Alice is complaining of headaches when she didn't originally have headaches. So she's doing that just like Bessie did. Now I'm no you know murderer but I do like my poisons. So naturally, I'm convinced he was poisoning his wives with something. It's not as if drugs, drugs, were hard to come by, drugs. Because, you know, they were giving you like morphine and cocaine and ether and all this other shit. Like, just here you go, have it. Nom, 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 nom. Like, yummy for your tummy. Drugs. Drugs. And they were just handy to get. Easy. You could just like soak your flypaper, all that shit. Loads of ways to get all stuff so like one way or another I'm convinced he was just causing headaches or maybe he was just really annoying like for all no because they wouldn't marry him if he was really annoying well well whom's to say oh wait did I mention that he specifically chose this particular accommodation because the room had a bathtub huh my oh my what a surprise so yeah One day, December 12th, he's like, Mmm, Mrs. Crosley, I'm going to go buy some eggs for the wife. In a completely inconspicuous and totally not weird way, he informs her, I'm away to get my wife some eggs. And then he comes back. Look, I got my wife the eggs. Wife, I have your eggs. And off he goes up to the room and, (gasps) alas! his wife Alice dead in the bath found by him and Mrs. Crossley so the local doctor is called and he comes over and he finds nothing suspicious because of course he doesn't hmm and you know it's it's not all sadness it's not all you know woe for Mr. Smith here because he's back to Smith again, by the way, George Smith. It's not all melancholy and, you know, grief, because he does have a £600 life insurance uh, that'll keep him warm at night, Just just to secure him, you know, like a security blanket, but for greed. And, like, you know, the first wife, like Bessie, she gets a really basic funeral, she gets the pauper's grave, there you go, bye, it's been fun. Done now. So, the following year, in September 1914, he marries Alice Reed. So, this is, you know, early on, First World War, he marries this woman. And he goes under the alias Charles Oliver James. And so, he clears out her savings and bookers off. She doesn't die, luckily. She, he just takes her money because he can and because he wants to. Because he wants to. Because he wants to. And after bollocksing off and leaving Alice Reed high and dry, so he has married her and taken her money. And two months later, he remarries Margaret Elizabeth Lofty. So, full circle back to the beginning. And where is George Joseph Smith right now? That's right, he's in a jail cell, where he is being held and awaiting trial. After being arrested in January 1950, the case against George Joseph Smith was definitely gaining traction, so this Detective Inspector Arthur Neal, he had brought in Spilsbury, who is effectively known as like, he's like the Sherlock Holmes of the era, like the actual one as opposed to, you know, Conan Doyle's imaginings. And first thing they do in February is they arrange to exhume the bodies and in the cold February air, shovels in hand, they dig up Bessie Mundy, Alice Burnham and Margaret Lofty. Not at the same time, it's like one then the other because they're in different graveyards, like one's in Blackpool, one's in London. But yeah, they are exhumed and they are studied by Spillsbury. And, like, he looks at their bodies, he sees no sign of, like, suicide or anything like that. He looks for signs of seizures, of fits, of violence. He checked to make sure there was no, like, circulatory issues or heart disease, anything like that. You know, just ruling everything out. Dr. Bernard Spilsbury, he starts testing these bathtubs. He's, like, measuring them against, like, the height and weight of the women and their shape and just all this... I'm gonna call it forensic science stuff before forensic sciencey stuff was really a thing. Ye olde forensics. You know what I mean? And after much research and testing, Dr. Bernard Spilsbury is convinced he knows exactly how George Joseph Smith murdered his victims. George Joseph Smith is arrested on the fifteenth of February nineteen fifteen and is formally charged on the twenty-third of March for the murders of Bessie Williams Alice Smith and Margaret Lloyd. And in June he goes to trial but he's only officially tried for one of the murders, not all three even though they use evidence from all three murders against him because they showed pattern of behaviour and things like that. So at the trial he doesn't give any evidence in his defence because what the fuck you gonna do mate? No. Like he does have a tantrum at one point and just like shouts in the court. Like don't do that. You're just a dick, like, and an idiot at that matter. Like, I don't want to give serial killers any ideas, but please, please, do not be your own defence attorney, lawyer, solicitor. Don't do that. Have a professional do that because you, oh, you're awful and, and, like, it's narcissistic and you will not do well anyway. At least try and have some decent representation because you just should. Because you do need to be aware that you are not smarter than everybody else. Clearly, because you have been caught. And at the trial, enter the pathologist, Dr. Bernard Spilsbury. The prosecution is very much relying on his testimony and he has to explain how this man, like, murdered three wives without, like, damaging them, you know? How did he drown them? And that was the main question. How did this man drown his brides? How did he manage to drown these women in tubs? Especially tubs that were quite small. I mean Bessie was like 5'7, five, 5'8, five, and the tub was 5 foot, so it didn't really make sense like how she would like she would have to really sink in, like her body really should have shot up, you know, if nothing else. It shouldn't have sunk under the water. So Spillsbury had a theory that George or whatever the fuck he was calling himself would get a little bit fresh and flirty with his new bride and under the pretense of being you know flirty and affectionate and intimate and all that stuff he would grab the bride by the leg and <coughs> yank her feet up forcing the body under the water and And pushing water, like, up the nose and into the lungs. And it would be, like, almost instantaneous. But in order to prove his theory, Spillsbury needed um, a willing participant, which he managed to get. But remember, this is also 1915 in Britain, which is already very stiff upper lip anyway. So a young woman in a bathing costume was scandalous at best and certainly wasn't appropriate for a court of law. So, the jury was brought into a private room where a woman climbed into the bath and he demonstrated this. He grabbed her by the ankles, yanked her under, pulled her feet out, forcing her torso under the water. And, what do you know, the woman almost drowns. They have to pull her out and then do, like, resuscitation. And, like, and she knew this was coming. So, imagine what it would be like if a woman was surprised. And so, at this trial, they have this demonstration they have the landladies being witnesses. You have the Barnums. you have the Haines. Everybody is there testifying against him. But you know who also shows up in court, hanging out in the back, watching this man suffer? His first wife, Caroline Thornhill. And she's clearly having the best time, living her best life, watching him, you know, getting his just desserts. Watching him squirm and have an actual tantrum, like seriously, shouting at the jury But how he's not a murderer and how he's innocent. No. <laughs> no, mate, you're not. And it basically takes the jury, what, 20 minutes, if that, to like find him guilty. And they do. So yeah. And on the 1st of July, he's convicted. He was found absolutely fucking guilty and sentenced to death. He tried to appeal it. It was denied. Obviously. And on the 13th of August, 1915, George Joseph Smith was hanged by the neck until dead. In Maidstone Prison, I believe. What happened to his body after that? I don't know. I don't care. I hope he got dumped in a pauper's grave. Like he did his wives. Who I I hope ended up with like a proper burial after this because... You know give them something but yes that is the story of the braids and the bath murders not to be confused with the acid bath murders which i will talk about at some point at some point <laughs> so if you liked my retelling of this story feel free to rate and review five stars say nice things or you can say mean things as long as you give five stars like don't nag me i've clearly got a praise kink Oh, don't forget you can follow me on socials. I'm on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. i um, it's hooded Pod on like, Instagram and TikTok, and it's hooded PD because um there wasn't enough characters for Twitter usernames. It's fine. I'm over it. Am I? No, it's irritating, but I'll I'll get over it. If you want to support the podcast, obviously social media, rating, reviewing. If you want to donate too, there is a link. Um, in the description, feel free. Uh, there's also the Amazon wishlist and merch is coming because I've been working with my friend um, who has been an absolute star and is helping me design some stuff. So there is merch coming, I assure you. Oh, oh, that's right. I actually have two giveaways coming soon. One of which is, it was supposed to be for my 5,000 followers on Instagram. But then I hit 100,000 really fast. So there's going to be like books and and stuff. And things by artists and Irish creators. And people I know that made kosher. I'm going to be doing a wee giveaway. It's going to be really cool. And because I am, you know, going to be speaking at the Heartland Pagan Festival. Into the Night 2023. The festival has very kindly gifted me. One festival pass worth like a hundred and fifty dollars. So that's gonna be coming up for grabs, so keep an eye on that. That'll be coming up soon ish once I, I work out some kinks with that. And I think it's recommendation time. So for listening, I don't know if I did it last week, but I'm definitely gonna say it this week. Again, if I haven't already done it, go listen to my future bestie, Reuben K's podcast, Come to Daddy. Because he is an absolute delight. He's so smart and funny. And I love him in a totally platonic way. Uh, for reading Burlesque and the Art of Tease by Derevan It's a really wonderful book just about the history of like, fetish and burlesque and all that kind of stuff. It is glorious. You absolutely should. And for watching. You know what? Just watch Taylor Swift's Lavender Haze" video. I have been watching that on repeat. It's so good. It's so good. I I adore it. I really do. Um, But if you want to watch, like, a movie, you know what? Watch Get Over It. It is a modern retelling of Shakespeare. They had this whole thing, like, in the late 90s, early 2000s, where they did this whole retelling of... Shakespeare and classics and they were really really good. They were so good. Get Over It is one of my favourites because I love Kirsten Dunst. Most of her like early stuff is just so funny. Like it's brilliant. So go do that. And with that it is time to say farewell because it is time to rest. Adios. Au revoir. Au revoir my friends. Bye bye.